Welcome to Engage Your World, the podcast of Engage 360 Ministries. We are in a series right now looking at all of the evangelistic encounters in the book of Acts and applying the gospel acronym that our ministry trains on, uh, which you may be familiar with if you've listened to past episodes. If not, we'll cover it really quickly here. So when we talk about the gospel acronym dealing with evangelism, what we found in studying the book of Acts was that there was a consistent pattern where the apostles, the New Testament leaders, would gauge their audience, G, offer common ground, O, shift to Christianity and the gospel, S, provide evidence that Christianity was true, P, explain the gospel, E, and then leave with a clear next step. And so what we've been doing is going through, looking at different uh, sections of Acts and applying this framework, seeing what elements show up. One thing to stress is it's not an order. This is not a method like we might think of uh, other evangelism methods. Instead, this is an overall framework, an overall approach once a conversation is engaged in and how does it uh, proceed? Because what we notice is that there are some things that are similar and some things that are very different in the techniques and strategies that are employed. And so we're going through looking at these and comparing and seeing what interesting observations we can make. Joining me today is Joshua Irline, one of our other trainers in Engage360, also based out of Charlotte. So really excited to have you on today, Josh, and be able to dive into Acts 6 and 7. Thanks. I'm glad to be here. All right, so this is a pretty long section, and Acts 6 and 7 really go together. We're going to be introduced to Stephen. We have his speech, and then we have Stephen stoning. And so this is a pretty long section of Scripture, so we're not going to sit here and read it on the podcast. I would encourage you, if you want to refresh on it, if you want to have seen everything more immediate, go ahead and pause the podcast right now. Take time to read Acts chapter 6 and 7, and then restart. But we'll touch on the high points, so if you don't have time to do that or if you don't have the capacity to do that right now, it'll be okay. You'll still be able to follow along. So with that said, Josh, why don't you tee us up? What's going on here in Acts chapter 6 as we begin, and what is the Stephen guy? What's he about? Yeah, so well, that's actually what Acts chapter 6 is about. Now, the book of Acts is not just history. It's also really good literature, and as with any good story— when there's going to be a, a significant character, we want to know who is he and why should we care. And so this is what Luke does, is he kind of sets us up with this controversy that arose. Okay, There was a need in the church for some leadership. So they picked these guys, men who were filled with the Holy Spirit and with wisdom. And one of those guys was a man named Stephen. Okay, So now we know where Stephen comes in to the picture why he's significant to the church in Jerusalem. And then it, it goes from there. Okay, now we've got the idyllic state, and now we're going to have the controversy that arises. There were some false accusations. He was accused of blasphemy because they just hated the message. They didn't like the message, couldn't pin anything on him legitimately, and so they make stuff up. That's what's really key to understand is, in this instance, it's not that Stephen did anything wrong to any of these people. It's not that he went and criticized them or attacked them, but they didn't like the message, and they tried to, as it says here in the text, that he was full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people, and then those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen and of the Cyrenes and the Alexandrians, 
rose up and disputed with Stephen. So he was just going along doing his thing. He was just going about his life, using the opportunities God had given him and the gifts God had given him. And suddenly these guys raise up and start to challenge him. The problem is that they didn't do well in their challenge and that Stephen was had too much wisdom and the spirit in him was too strong. They couldn't counter it. So now I guess they're embarrassed, right? Or they've been made to look bad or their challenge didn't work. So now they're going to play dirty, I guess we could say. Exactly. You know, it's not unlike a little digression, not unlike when uh, Jezebel recruited the, the term as sons of Belial or sons of worthlessness to make false accusations against Nabal so he could be stoned and so that Ahab could take his vineyard. This is that type of thing. It's very much in concord with what Jezebel did and what evil people still do. Yep, setting up these false witnesses. Now, what's interesting, though, is <laughs> their accusation is correct, but not in the way they think it's correct, right? Because what they challenge is they say that this man, Stephen, was teaching that Jesus of Nazareth will destroy the temple and the customs that Moses delivered. And so they say he's here to destroy what God put in place, where what they missed, along with what so many people at that time missed, including even the disciples in many instances, was he wasn't going to destroy it in the way they were expecting. <laughs> it wasn't a destruction as in getting rid of it, but a fulfilling and those things were pointing forward to him, to Jesus, to the Messiah, not him going back and destroying something to try to take over and be the thing instead. It wasn't a subversive overthrow. It was a fulfilling overthrow. These signs and shadows, they were done away with. And eventually even the sacrifices were ended. But it wasn't how they were saying it was. Correct. And it's interesting to me that they point to Moses and Stephen just goes all out history lesson on them. Like, <laughs> yes, he does. Let's go there. <laughs> yeah. So let's, let's dive into that. So as, as we said, we have our, the gospel acronym. We try to observe and see what elements pop out. So here's Stephen going about his life, using the gifts God had given him, going to the people. And there's this interruption now where there's people from the temple raising up against him, challenging him causing this false accusation. And now suddenly here comes the high priest. So Stephen is before the high priest and before the council and questioning, are these accusations true? Are you saying that this Jesus of Nazareth has come to destroy the temple, the customs of Moses and all of these things? And so Stephen now takes this opportunity to shift his focus to now witnessing to the crowd and to these religious leaders. And so he knows his audience. He knows that these are well-educated Jewish religious leaders. And so there are certain things that he's going to lean into because of that knowledge. And, you know, this wouldn't work if he was talking to people who had no understanding of the history of Israel and of the Jewish people and of the laws of Moses. But he knows that not only do these people have awareness of it, but they're supposed to be experts in it. And so he dives in. Right. So we've had like three of the six steps already. 
engage the audience. Engage his audience. Offer common ground. Yeah, starting where they are. So, you know, he says, brothers and fathers, hear me. Now, this is interesting too, because it's clear that he's not he's not setting himself up to be contentious on purpose, which I think is not important. adversarial. Right. No. He's not being adversarial. And so he says, brothers and fathers, hear me. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, go out from your land, from your kindred and go into the land that I will show you. Now, he continues on, like you said, in this history lesson. But it's so important to understand he's starting not trying to be contentious, not trying to be adversarial willing to confront, but not being adversarial in that. And he starts where they will be able to begin tracking with them. So he goes back to Abraham, right? Which is going to be a good starting point whenever you would be speaking to a Jewish leader, because obviously they're going to hold Abraham in high regard and they're going to be very aware of this history. So that would be his beginning to offer common ground. And he starts going through this lesson. So then as we kind of continue on here, the question becomes, how does that shift work in? What did you observe in that, Josh, as you were looking through this? What Stephen seems to be doing here is he's first identified with the audience, you know, brothers and fathers, and he's going to give their common shared heritage with Abraham, but he's going to start highlighting a pattern. This is the pattern that is actually going to eventually become somewhat contentious not quite adversarial maybe, but this is the rub. This is what's really going to bother them is he's going to show that this is what's always been happening with the Jewish people. And, and, and by this, I don't mean that there's something unique about the Jews that they rebelled. This is unique to humankind. So if you happen to be human, <laughs> right. this is unique to you too. But when God is doing something and God is revealing himself, even through wondrous things, doing great things, you know, in history for the people, for his global plan that he's working out of redemption, people resist. And he's going to kind of highlight that pattern and then bring that back around onto them that you guys are always doing this. Right. And you're doing it now. Right. Yeah. And he builds that, you know, he just goes into all the different history, the patriarchs, Joseph and, and his being sold into slavery, then how God redeemed that, right. And how he used that. And then he moves forward with that promise and, and what Egypt did and, and the Exodus and, and Mount Sinai and Moses and the parting of the Red Sea. And he keeps laying out this, like you said, where God does something, they sort of see it and receive it in part, but then they start to turn against it, whether it's they're not satisfied or they're always looking for something more or just that human tendency takes over of fear but I, I found it really interesting when, as he builds through, and then he gets to Solomon, but it was Solomon who built the house for him. This is in Acts 7, verse 47. It was Solomon who built a house for him, being God. Yet the most holy does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Do not my hand make all these things. So before we get into where Stephen does shift to bringing the heat a little bit more, <laughs> um, I would say this begins to be a, not only this, this is a part of the shift from giving this history to shifting to Christianity and the gospel, but also beginning to add that element of providing some evidence that clearly he's not saying God didn't tell them to build the temple. 
or God didn't say that he was dwelling among his people there, but that that was never the thing that was symbolic. It was pointing to something even greater. And so I read in part here, don't get caught up on the specific and miss the forest for the trees that yes, God did this, but we know it was pointing to something more because he even says through his prophet, the heaven's my throne, there's my footstool. I don't literally in completeness live in that place, the Holy of Holies, but he is there uniquely. So he's not, he's not denying it, but he's trying to begin to sow that, that seed of what is something greater? What is the greater fulfillment here? Because that's what you should be looking for. And then after that, he, he brings the heat and this is where he brings the challenge. And he started off, you know, not adversarial, built his case, tried to point them forward to the greater fulfillment, explaining how is it that he says Jesus is going to destroy the temple, right? And so there's the temple, temple tie-in. And then he says, starting in verse 51 of chapter 7, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. That doesn't go quite so well for him. That's where the patience ends of hearing what he has to say. Yeah, there's a little bit of friction. It's, it's maybe not easy to pick up in the text, but there's a little <laughs> bit of friction there. <laughs> and I appreciate what you said, taking a step back. Paul is going to echo what Stephen says here on Mars Hill, only in a Gentile context. So when Stephen here says, the Most High does not dwell in houses made by human hands, as the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is the footstool of my feet. What kind of house will you build for me? This is exactly what Paul says to the Areopagus when he says that God does not dwell in temples made by human hands as if he needed anything. You know, he's not served by human hands. He's not that kind of a being. He doesn't need those things. So these things, they're not the end in themselves, the temples, right. the sacrifices. These are really the shadows of the substance, which is Christ. And so I think this is what Stephen is tying into with the accusation at the beginning that this Jesus is going to destroy the customs handed down to us by Moses. Well, yes, but only because the customs were for this. This is what they were meant for. They were meant to point us, as you said, to something deeper and something bigger than even the temple or the sacrifices or things like that. He is going to be those things in reality and not the shadow, the picture that they are. Absolutely. Yeah. And I think another important element to see here, and I know, Josh, this is the first time you've joined us on the podcast, but we've looked through these things. You helped develop our, our core study in Acts 2 and Acts 17 that we do in our live trainings. But one thing that has continued to jump out to me as we've done this series through Acts is how often what we have in the text is the disciple or the follower of Christ 
responding directly to something brought to them, to a challenge, to a circumstance, and their message is to answer that challenge or to deal with that. And you see, they don't have a prescripted, okay, I'm going to say this one little thing and then I'm going on to my script. They're always going through. And what you see, if you really pay attention is they're answering the main accusation, but they weave these elements of the gospel. And particularly what I see is the shortcomings, the misunderstandings of who that audience, that particular audience is of why they're missing or an element that they're missing about Jesus, the Messiah, the gospel, and they're answering that. So here, Stephen ends this whole history lesson by focusing on the temple and exactly what you're saying of how God doesn't live in that, he doesn't live in and houses made by hands. But the reason he's talking about that is because that was the challenge they brought. They're saying that you you are teaching this Jesus of Nazareth is going to destroy the temple. So this is several pages in your Bible, most likely, many paragraphs, to get to explaining what does that mean? That Jesus isn't trying to literally tear the stones apart, but that it was never about that in the first place. So what he's it's it's that fulfillment. But he's answering the question of his audience. And I think we can take away from that and learn to be sensitive to what is it that people are asking or challenging or confused about and not getting stuck on our script that we're used to sharing, but really trying to answer what is this person's confusion or need or desire or interest that we can build to help explain the gospel. Uh, and I think that's something that often is missed. Yeah, and, and tying into that, I was thinking how he ties in one of the elements of the gospel, the death of Christ, but he does it in a particular way. It all follows from this history lesson argument that he's made, but he talks about the death of Christ and he accuses them of being the perpetrators of this travesty of justice. And he says, you become his murderers. And this is part of the resisting that they do to the work of God. They're stiff-necked. And this is the righteous one that was to come, and you murdered him. Okay, so that's Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures. Now, that's the centerpiece that he's trying to communicate to them, that Christ died. He doesn't say it's for your sins, but they need to recognize just how unrighteous they are before this good news is going to mean anything remotely good to them. Right. Again, for anyone who's been through our training, when we focus on the gospel, we say, what we've seen is that though the gospel, the particular gospel that Paul covers in 1 Corinthians 15 is on Jesus's death by crucifixion, his burial, his resurrection, and his appearances, though that's the gospel proper, you could say, there has to be a context for that gospel or good news to be good news. So I, th I think it's Ray Comfort. I don't know if he came up with this, but I know one of the things he tries to emphasize and what he does is he talks about how you have to know the bad news before you can understand the good news or something, something along those lines. And the way that we've framed it is there has to be a context for the gospel to make sense. If you don't think you need a gospel, then it's not good news. It is the good news, right? We're not denying that. But for that person, if they don't think they have a need, then it's not going to make any sense to them why it's good news. 
And so that's exactly what Stephen is doing here, showing them their guilt, showing them their need. You know, maybe I, I might be reading into this. And, and again, for anyone listening the first time, we prepare for these, but we're not doing a deep technical study. This is not a in-depth get into the original languages and all of that. So there might be some nuances we're missing because of that. We're trying to keep this a conversational study that any of you driving to work, you know, sitting at home could just listen along and follow with. We're trying not to be technical. We're not saying there's not a place for that. That's just not the purpose of this podcast series. So when I read that, one of the things that jumps out to me in 53, when he says, you who received the laws delivered by angels and did not keep it, it seems to be going into that very thing you're talking about there, Josh, of showing their need, saying, you receive the law, but you don't even follow it. <laughs> you act as though you have a righteousness of your own, but you don't even follow the law that you received. So that should show you you have this need. That should create that context that you should be open to hearing this gospel message, this good news. It's also interesting to note the way that this gospel encounter ends. I want to be careful how I say this. We can say in one sense, well, this wasn't a very successful gospel encounter because uh, nobody seems to have repented. In fact, the opposite. I mean, it does say that they were cut to the quick. So obviously the message hit home, but their response was just to push it away to say, I, I don't want to have anything to do with this, except I want to kill you. I mean, I'm so angry about this. Not a good response, not positive, right? But it's also a very successful gospel encounter in another sense. And I think that Luke gives us kind of this perspective. Not every gospel encounter is going to be successful in the way that we want it to be successful. But I contend that this one, though nobody seems to have been saved in this encounter. It was very successful in its faithfulness to Christ. And we see even here God's stamp of approval on Stephen in the good death, in the way that he went down glowing. You know, we say sometimes, oh, he went down fighting, you know, went down in a blaze of glory. Well, he, uh, Luke says in verse 55, says, but being full of the Holy Spirit, he gazed intently into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. And he said, behold, I see the heavens opened and the son of man standing at the right hand of God. Hmm. I think that Stephen at the end of the day counted this a raging success, that this was better than he anticipated. Probably <laughs> it's not the end of the story, obviously. And some of these that were here actually did later believe one of them we're going to learn a lot about a young man named Saul but this was not what we would typically think of a success but it was very successful right yeah one of the things we've commented about in the past few episodes uh, a couple of times was how the apostles when the sanhedrin brings them in the council brings them in questions them wants them to stop and tries to use threats and fear and intimidation, beats them. Instead of being intimidated, they rejoice that they're counted worthy to suffer for the cause of Christ. How just totally that doesn't make sense. And yet that's why they turned the world upside down, because they were so convinced, they knew it was true, and they were so committed, and their 
eyes were fixed on the ultimate prize, which was the world to come, the life to come, eternity with Christ, eternity with God, that they were willing to endure whatever this world brought, even if it was beating, even if it was persecution, even if it was death. And even in his death, Stephen, you know, perhaps makes the most persuasive argument of all in his whole speech (laughs) in how he dies. Not only the confidence that he has, the rejoicing that he has, calling out that he sees the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of God, but then also that he asked God not to hold it against the crowd. Yeah. And how, you know, we imagine, and I think there can be danger in that, but there's also value in it. So, you know, within the right parameters, but you imagine the impact that had to have on some people there of who is this? Who are these people that they can die rejoicing and asking for forgiveness for those that are killing them? It does not make yeah. sense. It, yeah, exactly. And I, and I don't want us to miss the significance of what it is that Stephen says that he sees. He sees the Son of Man. This is an Old Testament motif, this idea. Now, Jesus did call himself the Son of Man, but I think he's also keying in on this Old Testament motif. Very fascinating passage in Daniel chapter 7, where there's a Son of Man that comes. He's the one that receives this fifth and final kingdom. After the four kingdoms of this earth are they're destroyed by his kingdom, but uh, but he sees the Son of Man seated at the right hand of God. Okay, this is what God has said to Christ in the Psalms, and then also it's quoted in the New Testament. You know, sit at my right hand. The writer of Hebrews quotes it until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Uh, it's quoted in First Corinthians fifteen. But this idea of Christ reigning, do you remember? So I was going to say, do you remember the Great Commission? Yeah, we, we all remember the Great Commission. But the words that Jesus says right before the commissioning part are essential. He says this, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. So this reigning Christ is the foundation for the going. This is why we go is because Christ is seated at the right hand of the Father. The Father is making all of his enemies a footstool for his feet. We can walk smiling into the furnace, as it were, because Christ is reigning. It's not fully consummated yet, but it will be. Right. He's there now. That's good news. And the other thing, and I'll kind of cap it with this and see if you have any final comments, but you bring up the completion of that Old Testament passage of you sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool. Well, just earlier in the same Acts 7 in Stephen's speech, he says and quotes a different Old Testament prophecy from God that heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. So perhaps, whether intentional or not, certainly the tie is there that just as the earth is God's footstool, God is going to make the enemies of the Messiah a footstool. And so perhaps there's even an illusion with that. So pretty amazing the way this all comes together. Any final thoughts? It's a good message. It is. 
and we should share it. Yes, absolutely. And we may deal with more persecution in the places that most of our, our listeners would be hearing this more than perhaps in the past, but it still pales in comparison to the persecution that Christians face around the world and throughout history. And if we're not willing to bear up under some embarrassment or maybe a lost relationship or two, now we want to be wise and we want to stress, you don't go offend people just for the sake of it. But if we're afraid to even try sharing because we might have some sort of effect or impact, we need to really look to these passages and be encouraged and emboldened to do our part facing the minimal in the grand scheme persecution we do, inspired by those that suffered great loss for the cause of Christ. All right. Well, thank you guys for joining us. We look forward to being with you guys again here in a couple of weeks. As we continue on, we're going to be looking at Saul and his conversion and the beginning of Saul or Paul, as he goes by both names, his ministry. And he'll go from participating in the stoning of Stephen to a very drastic turn, as I'm sure you're all very aware. But look forward to being with you then and talking through everything. Thanks again for joining us. This is Matt and Joshua with Engage360, and you've been listening to Engage Your World.